I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Dominique Weiss. Dominique, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a geochemist. Uh, What is a geochemist? A geochemist is someone who is having fun with chemistry while also being able to work outside and enjoy the beautiful nature that our world is made about. Wonderful. That's a very poetic way of putting it. Uh, What did you study to become a geochemist? What's your background? My background is a little funny, a little convolute. Although when I started, I ended up being on rails, and I wish I had taken more turns afterwards, but I wanted to be a medical doctor, and then I decided it was too long to study to be a medical doctor. When I went to register at the university, I debated between law and math, I registered in la- in math. After two days, I decided the mathematicians had two narrow minds. I didn't go to law. I went to geography instead. My parents were both high school geographer teachers. This created an uproar at home. They never told me what to do. So I kept, I did my first year undergrad in geography. And then I decided I needed more option than being a high school teacher, which in Belgium was more or less, was the the most common option of being a geographer. And I moved into geology. I moved into geology because by the time I had read a couple of books about oceanography, the oceans, one was uh, Rachel Carlson, the other one was uh, Planet Ocean, I don't remember the author. And in Belgium, to be an oceanographer, you had to do geology. We had a very famous oceanographer by the name of Wallast. And that's how I started. And and then I continued in geology, enjoyed my undergrad and, uh, and kept moving on. Great. Did you do all your schooling in Belgium? Yes, the undergrad and then my thesis were done in Belgium. And then after that, I did a master in environmental science. So after my PhD, I know it doesn't make any sense, but that's what it was. And then I did the postdoc in Paris at uh, IPGP, the Institut Physique du Globe, and then a postdoc at Caltech. And the two advisors for my postdoc studies were at the time, the two most famous and most difficult geochemists. One was Claude Allègre, and the other one was Jay Wasserbaugh. So I learned the hard way, but I'm very glad of the experience. When I was in the US, in California, I discovered the outdoors, and I really fell in love with the space. And I didn't want to go back. I didn't plan going back, but the Belgians came after me and offered me a permanent job 
in an institution equivalent to the CNRS in France. So it, in Belgium, it's called the FNRS, Fonds National de la Recherche Scientifique. You basically, basically paid full time to do uh, research. I couldn't turn that down, so I went back. And it kept going on from there. Wonderful. And how did you end up at UBC? Well, I'm, as many people know, I'm not somebody staying put. I always need a new challenge. I like doing interesting things. I also met my husband. I mean, who at the time wasn't my husband, was Canadian, and uh, opportunities developed at UBC, and either you jump it when you can, or you miss a, a good chance. So I came with a Canadian research chair, tier one. I have to say, and I say that 20 years later, because tomorrow, I think, it's the 20th anniversary of us moving to UBC. If I had known what I was coming for, I probably would not have done it. And I'm, I'll happily explain that. The Pacific Center for Isotope and uh, Geochemical Research, which I direct, is an amazing lab. It's now world-renowned. What I wasn't aware of is that I would end up running a business meaning I have to raise the salaries of the whole support team. And the team is essential to make the facility operate as it is. It was incredibly difficult over the first few years, mostly because I arrived and discovered the financial mess, but mostly because it takes a while to find the ways a system works. And right now, for instance, I have to raise $1.2, $1.3 million a year to pay the salaries of the team. And it's we have a system. Obviously, the system is being tested very severely by the COVID pandemic because a lot of our users haven't been asking for analysis. I really enjoy working with the team, but it has been not an easy first 10 years, I would say. You didn't sign up to be a business person. You signed up to be a scientist, but uh, it's a hat that you wear very well. Well, I'm a scientist. I luckily had the grandfather who was a businessman. He had his own company, a movie company, and he taught me a few things that have helped me at least keeping a clear view of the finance and, and trying to keep things sustainable. I owe that to him. But what we miss as scientists is the people management skills. That's another um, facet of my job. And I enjoy it. But, you know, as scientists, or as professors, we never train to do that. And we should, actually. I would advocate that university faculty members should be trained to deal with people. Uh, I, To me, no, that's the, the biggest, well, that and interacting with students is where I enjoy my day-to-day -day job the most, is dealing with people. Excellent. I think that your years of training for uh, teaching uh, paid off. No, I don't think the, tra the teaching training is, has anything to do 
with with uh, dealing with people. The I think the way it works is first respect. You need to show respect to everybody and be available to talk, listen to their needs, and also be conscious of everyone's limits. I had to learn that, and uh, that that's very important. Those words of wisdom are particularly um, salient with the, the pandemic. Yes, the pandemic has has been challenging. It's been challenging financially for the facility, has been challenging to the team. And again, you know, we have, and, and, and I use the word team because I'm a very strong believer that if people were not working with each other and helping each other to troubleshoot instruments, the facility wouldn't be what it is. But it's also because they respect each other, listen to each other. And so we really worked together to make this safe for everyone and to make it workable so we could keep function. And this has worked out so far. That's a very holistic perspective on uh, human resources management. And it, I think you get a lot of that holistic um, mentality from your science. Uh, you're the one who actually taught me that geoscience is more than just looking at the chemistry of rocks. It's uh, a really diverse field. Um, what are you working on right now, scientifically? Talking about a diverse perspective, I'm, I'm work. I'm probably quite a few people will hold their eyes on the variety of subjects I'm working on. But that's where geochemistry is really fun. So I'm still working on Hawaii. That's, I can work on Hawaii in my sleep. I probably should not, but I happen to do that when I'm working on a paper. I'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea of something to put in the manuscript I'm working on. And I, I love solving problems because at the end of the day, that's what we do as, as solving problems or questions as scientists. Um, I will work a little more on the Garibaldi belt and the cascades, mostly because we came up with very nice answers to a few questions and also because, to my great surprise, it was a big open field. I really don't like to work on something where there are many people working on. I don't like that type of competition, even if people will take me as being quite competitive. Uh, but I like open fields. And then over the years, well, over the years and going back to my roots, basically, I've always wanted to solve societal issues. And that's where geochemistry can come into play too. That's how we started using lead isotope fingerprinting, and I'll put quotes around fingerprinting, and, and a trace metal concentration in honey comes into play. This whole study started trying to help a nonprofit organization in downtown Vancouver, mostly to show that the honey was clean. Turns out that there were very interesting scientific questions behind that. As we observed, different metal concentration depending on the location of the beehive 
and also different lead isotopic signature. We also wanted to do this height, so develop some uh, sampling techniques prepared with the help of a graduate student, Kate Smith, who is now Dr. Smith, uh, put some sampling kits with clear instructions so we could be fully confident with the, the sampling. And um, the, outcome are, are very, uh, the outcomes are very interesting for the city. They were very interesting for Hives for Humanity. We showed that the honey was very clean. Now we apply the same techniques to salmon and other fish from the Pacific, mostly to, to assess potentially the migration patterns of the salmon, but most of the results will actually show us how high the lead and other metal levels are in the fish. And if we can put a correlation, depending on the geography where like if the salmon from the Arctic have the same metal levels than the salmon of the West Pacific and, and so on. And we're comparing, I do that with two of, the, two of my students, current students, Brooke and um, Jasmine. And then one of the work I'm doing now that I value the most is the work with the indigenous communities. And again, a lot of these recent studies have been come to me serendipitously. Uh, the Hornet was the friend of a friend. The, the study of the Garibaldi belt was the student and a postdoc who absolutely wanted to work on subduction zone volcanism. But all this to say is that with the data that we have on the volcanoes of the Pacific Northwest, we have the background levels for that we use in, in the pollution studies, but we also have a very clear geographic trend in Canada that basically allows for us to know where a sample is coming from just on the basis of the lead isotopic analysis. So when the Muscarum community has come to us asking for the origin of some of the belongings that they found, we developed a technique with another student, Hi Macmillan, Dr. Macmillan now, that allowed to minimize the impact on the belonging because it's obviously important to not destroy them and to assess where they were coming from. And doing that, we find out very interesting results, specifically that um, the transport and the trades were going way further than we, we could have anticipated originally. I still find that really interesting. Um all the aspects of your work. You're using salmon to track the point sources uh, or the origins of different pollutions. And um, you're using that same science to help First Nations communities understand where their artifacts have come from. And that's also really helpful for museums too, uh, who may have uh, artifacts in their collections, which um, the origin wasn't recorded. Um, so that, congratulations. <laughs> Well, that's the fun part of the job. That's why I like doing what I'm doing. And that's why I, I always tease the students in the third year geochemistry 
introduction to geochemistry saying, I'm going to show you that chemistry is fun. We, we can do really fun science and, and answer nice questions. And to come back to the museum, Rai actually has developed a protocol now that is used in the Museum of Anthropology, where he uses a portable XRF and can scan the object and basically assess some of the essential characteristics to help the curator know where they're coming from. And also, that's not the Museum of Anthropology, but th there are some museums where they need to know if, and that's not what Rai is doing, but that's another application, if uh, some of their collections are dangerous or not. Or, and so you can assess if there is a lot of uranium or if there are other toxic metals that are released by the collection and that potentially should be curated differently. Absolutely, that's a huge concern, even for us, um, the safety of the minerals that we put on display. That's what you're working on right now. Um, what would you say is your proudest discovery in, in the past of your career? <laughs> that's a difficult answer. I don't know... I can't say I'm part of any discovery. I'm more part of what I can do with my students and see them blossom and work together and write fun papers. Okay, there are a few things that were represent a milestone in my career. One is the the total study of Hawaii and the discovery of the different composition between the volcanoes on the lower trend or on the Kea trend and connect that to the, the source in the deep mantle. That was 11 or 12 years ago. Now this has become taken a, 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 a new life, sort of mostly because to resolve those questions we can't do it alone with geochemistry. We need to do it in collaboration with other scientists, geophysicists, geodynamicists, um, mineral physicists. And that's something I really enjoy doing. It's bringing different perspectives. And for instance, I've been invited to write a review paper in Nature Reviews for the Earth and Environmental Science. And on Hawaii, and I was asked, no, not on, on Hawaii, on the Oceanic Island Basalts, Hawaii being obviously one of the biggest example. I was asked to put together a diverse team, and I have a team of co-authors of 10 other women. So people will have already have been confronted saying, that's not diverse. All I can say is we're working very well together. I'm very proud of that team and we enjoy working together and we're having great fun working on this uh, review paper. That's really cool. So you can actually figure out where uh, or how deep the, uh, the lava came from that made these rocks, right? It's an indirect evidence. 
And that's where we need the geophysicists, although the, the, and, and the seismologists. I, um, I've been recently working, no outcome yet, but spending a fair amount of time with Baba Romanovich, who is a, a world specialist in the seismology of, of the deep mantle. And uh, we're trying to combine our approaches because that will be a very good example where one plus one is way more than two and see how we can resolve these fundamental questions. The problem is now the geochemist, we have the right resolution, but when you analyze the lava at the surface, we know it's coming from deep in the Earth's mantle. For a while, we think it's coming from all the way down from the core mantle boundary, but we don't have the proof. Barbara can use the geophysical data and model the anomalies in the deep mantle. They need a better resolution. It's getting there. The progress are, are very fast. They need more computing power. They need better data. Hawaii is not the best location for that mostly because it's in the middle of nowhere. And so there is a lot of, um, the signal is not as clean as it could be. You're basically 6,000 kilometers away from anything, but it's, um, it's a fun thing to do. Wonderful, that's really cool science. And I'm, I'm glad you're working with uh, multiple different fields. That's always fun too. You mentioned that you're really proud of your, your grad students and it, it comes through with the stories you tell. Uh, what do you look for when you're choosing your grad students? I think by now, I mean, the X minutes in the interview, you have an idea of what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for an average student. Um, I like students who think out of the box, have their own personality, can take challenge. But most importantly, I love working with students who give me challenge. Recently, I had a couple of students who kept me on the tip of my toes. I won't say it was easy every day, but I just love working with them. One example is Lauren Harrison, who is now a postdoc at the United States Geological Survey. Sometimes she drove me nuts, but we did great things together. We still, I mean, she graduated four years ago, I think. We're still working on, on projects together and we're still having great fun because we stimulate each other and that makes a big difference. Excellent. Diversity is um, really important, both uh, intellectual diversity, but also uh, personal diversity. I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your research or your career? If I say no, that as a woman, I belong in an underrepresented community, people will smile and say, this is not true. Well, I'm not young and well, I'm not young anymore. When I started, most of the places I went, I ended up being the only woman among many men. And sometimes it was positive, but sometimes it was not positive. I learned a lot. But I wouldn't say, I would say it made my career more difficult than I would have anticipated. I never thought about that ahead of time. 
I had an amazing opportunity. Actually, I had two, two amazing opportunities. I had many amazing opportunities, but two relevant to this. The first was a very positive opportunity that I was had by the European Union in the early 90s, I think, to be part of a panel that was triggered by Edith Cresson. And the panel was basically to assess the situation of women in science in Europe, in the members, the, the country members the member countries of the European Union. And uh, we were representing various fields and there was one representative by country. And to me, it was an eye opener because what was interesting, what I learned, it's gonna sound obvious to everybody, but you know, was still young at the time. It's that every woman in ev any country, any field, had encountered the same difficulties and the same challenge that I did in the Little Belgium. I shouldn't call it the Little Belgium, but it's a very small country. Um, interacting with that team for three years, we produced an amazing report, uh, was an eye-opener for me. I also had the opportunity to meet with, with fascinating people, very rich people, humanly and, and, and learn all kinds of things. The other experience I had is that the first time I went on the Kerguelen archipelago in the middle of the Indian Ocean, I was the only woman with 120 Frenchmen. So when you get there, you dropped off by the boat the boat goes away, the supply boat goes away, and you stuck there until the next rotation of the boat, which is any time between six to 10 weeks. So I ended up in this very remote part of the world, which I loved. It's beautiful because we did field work in areas where clearly nobody had ever set a foot. And I had two very good uh, companions on the field, but where things were very difficult was at the base, where being the only woman and also being among men who had not seen a woman in person for eight to 10 months turned out to be challenging. The bottom line is that I ended up requesting not coming on the base as much as we could, and so we, we took the decision and I was perfectly backed up by my two companions to stay longer on the field, which is quite uncomfortable, uh, but to not have to deal with the base atmosphere. That does sound really challenging. Are things getting better? Well, I haven't been in that situation anymore. I don't think there are many situations like that anymore. But I mean, where it would be one woman with 120 French men. But from what we have seen recently, the picture of a scientist, there is still a very long way to go. And there are many people who negate that situation, say, oh, this is a thing of the past. It is not a thing of the past. Men are men, women are women, and we have a long way to go. 
Sorry, I've been jumping around in the questions. <laughs> I just want to make sure I got that last story. <laughs> um, there is one thing I can follow up. Yeah, go ahead. On on this and 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 connecting with students and working with them is the story of the red boots. This all came about because I had this amazing pair of Asolo red hiking boots. And everybody teased me about my red boots, which I have to wear because I have a metal hip and so I'm more stable with hiking boots. But it's also coming down to putting your foot down. And this started probably 10 years ago. And it's a joke among my students and about my friends is, well, Dominic and her red boots, but my students know, know how to put red boots on, and it's an image, but also what I mean, it's to stand for themselves and to make sure that principles are respected. And even if it, it starts with a joke, it's a, it's a nice image and it's, um, it's important. Despite this difficult situation where I had been, I always stood up for myself, including putting my hand in the face of a couple of men. And that was not in Kirkland. It wasn't one was in Kirkland, but the other ones were not in Kirkland. Luckily, I never had to severe consequences about that, but I wouldn't do it differently anyway. I can't do it differently. So it's um, that's what it is. Excellent. And speaking of uh, students, uh, if anyone's listening right now and wants to follow you in, into geochemistry, what courses or experience would you recommend they pursue? Well, you can come to geochemistry from many directions. Like among the students I've had, some are geologists, some are environmental scientists. I had a, a chemist, an archaeologist. As long as you can handle a little bit of chemistry, but again, fun chemistry, and you're not afraid of uh, being clean because that's essential. We work at levels that are very, very low in terms of, of uh, concentrations. And basically anything we do has the potential to contaminate our analysis. That's why the PCIGR facility has the labs it has, the labs are epifiltered, which are called absolute filters. Basically, it means you eliminate as much as possible particles from, from the environment to limit, to have clean air. We, we deal with levels that are PP, so part per million, part per billion, and not even parts per trillion. So that's one divided by one million times one million. A PPT is the equivalent of one drop of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. That just shows you how low these levels are. So you need to be clean. You need to, to be systematic in your approach. But it's, it's actually a fun, another fun challenge, especially when there is a problem of contamination. It's to try to identify where it's coming from. Um, Luckily, we haven't had many, but sometimes it's not our fault. Uh, why do you think there are sticky mats everywhere in Eos Mains, these blue sticky mats where you leave your footprint? 
Well, PCIGI installed those basically to avoid the distribution of dust everywhere in the building. Obviously, it's not efficient at 100%, but at least it's limiting the extent of dust coming into the building to avoid contaminating the labs. Yeah, your lab always looks very fancy and high-tech with everyone wrapped up in plastic. Uh, you were ahead of the curve with COVID. <laughs> yeah, well, we that's the advantage of our filtration system with our epifilters and the fact that the labs were designed as separate units for different analytical scheme, we could work in relatively isolated conditions and also being safe with COVID. So that's a small advantage of um, protocols that some people find very demanding. But necessary. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious. Um... Every field changes very quickly, and especially you work with so many different fields. Um, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely different by the time that they retire. Uh, so where do you see geochemistry going in the future, and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes? Well, geochemistry has a lot of potential for the future. Geochemistry is becoming a tool that is essential for many, many disciplines. I'm thinking, for instance, in mineral exploration, but also many environmental studies, impacts, um, quantification. It's a, it's a fundamental tool that has a lot of potential. And the techniques evolved very fast. For instance, who would have thought 10, 15 years ago that we would be able to analyze in situ, so in a thin section, to analyze lead isotopic composition in a mineral? We can do that. And because the sensitivity of the instruments has become way better, and obviously we need to keep working on that, but it's, uh, it's it allows all kinds of... Um, new research topic, answering all kinds of, of, of different que questions, there, there is a lot of potential. Now, my final question for today uh, is a more personal one. Um, you've had a, a very long career uh, and done some excellent things. What would you like to have as your legacy when you retire, if, if you ever retire? Oh, yes, I'll retire because I have other things to do in my life. As you know, I love photography. It's my hobby, and I would like to push it further. Uh, that doesn't mean I will retire tomorrow. Uh, well, my legacy is there already. I would say it's the Pacific Center for Isotope and Geochemical Research. And what I want to guarantee and secure for when I retire is the future of PCIGR so that it keeps, it's a world-renowned facility. And uh, I want to make sure that the team can be employed, that they can keep doing the great research they're doing, and that it, con it can continue to be a research lab that um, UBC can be part of. I would add to that, that you've also got a, a large um, 
group of, of students who can thank you for getting their careers started. Oh yeah, and and I keep in we keep in touch and and um, interact. I mean, they reach out at birthdays, Christmas, whatever celebration. They also reach out when they need an advice or a letter or they have a question, and um, that's obviously. I don't see it as a legacy, but it is clearly a legacy. It, but they all their own human being, and that's what I love seeing. It's them being successful in whatever they do. It doesn't have to be a scientific career, and and being happy. Excellent. Well, Dominique, uh, those are all the questions I have for today. You forgot one. I did forget one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a criticism, but it's because it's one that made me think about is who are my scientific heroes. And my scientific heroes are Marie Curie and Claire Patterson. Marie Curie, it's very obvious, she discovered radioactivity, and then later on in her life, she applied her science for the benefit of the humanity to her own health detriment, and enough said. The other one is Claire Patterson. Claire Patterson is the scientist who first had a brilliant idea, idea on how to date the age of the Earth. And he did that in 1956. It was a brilliant idea. And for that, he used lead isotopes. But doing that, Claire Patterson also had terrible analytical issues in, in the mid-60s. His data was not perfectly reproducible and, and he couldn't figure out why. And so he did a lot of investigation and doing that, he put his finger on a major pollution issue, which was the lead released into the environment because of its addition to cars. And that was a worldwide problem because lead was added to gasoline everywhere in the world as an antique knock and lead being relatively volatile was has been distributed everywhere in the environment. We still find now the lead, we call it legacy lead, that was released because of the gasoline. It's through the work of Claire Patterson and his colleagues who ended up studying fish in the Pacific, Peruvian uh, bones that were 20, human bones that were 2,500 years old. He even went all the way to Antarctica, where he proved that the increased lead levels were related to gasoline. So he, he went on a campaign. He was vilified by the gas companies. But through his tenacity and his careful work, he managed to prove to the authorities, the right authorities, whatever they were, that this was a major issue, and that's how we ended up stopping adding lead to gasoline in the 90s. And so he was a bit of an original, and there's a very funny uh, Cosmos series, which is called The Clean Room, showing Claire Patterson in his clean room and, and what he did. But he's, um, the, the path of his career from 
dating the Earth, giving the first absolute age of the Earth at 4.56 billion years, which is still valid now, to the, the environmental studies and, and this whole body of work is, is fascinating. I had the opportunity to meet him as a young postdoc at Caltech and uh, he wasn't an easy guy, but he was definitely fascinating. That's an amazing story, trying to figure out the history of the planet uh, leading to the banning of adding lead to gasoline. Um, I love those stories with science. <laughs> yeah, that's what makes all science fun. And your science in particular is fun and useful. That's what I try to do. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing all of uh, your stories and experiences. Um, no, thank did you. Did I miss anything else? Well, maybe, but I don't remember. So that's fine. And thank you very much for having me. That was fun. Thank you. Or should I say merci? Merci. Avec plaisir. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me, and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.